This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 20. I want to speak this morning as we conclude this series on the cross on the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, the nail-scarred hands of the cross. And so I'm going to be reading this morning as our foundational passage in John chapter 19 or John chapter 20 and I want to read verses 19 through 29. In John chapter 20, beginning with verse number 19, the word says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Wouldn't that have been an incredible thing? To have, to have heard Jesus say, peace be unto you. In verse 20, and when he had so said, he showed unto them, look at this, his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen you and me. This verse pertains to today. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And so I'm speaking this morning on the scars in the hands of Jesus or the nail-scarred hands of the cross. I'm not sure how many of you ever take the time whenever we 
sing the great songs that we do here in our church, to take the time to examine the words. In fact, sometimes it would be good maybe to write down on a little piece of paper, maybe on your bulletin somewhere, the songs we sing in the service, and maybe go back sometime during the week, reminisce on those songs and think about uh, the wonderful words that they contain. Because I assure you that when you look at these songs that we sing often, they are more than beautiful harmonies and beautiful melodies. Every song that we sing here in our church, whether they be new songs or whether they be old songs, every song that we sing is enriched with doctrine and praise to God. That's, that's important. I mean, we sang some of these old songs that came to my mind. I jotted a few of them down in my study of this week. Songs like Power in the Blood. It's good that you sang that song this morning, Brother David, but... Uh, that's incredible that we were on the same uh, page as far as God speaking to us about that particular song. When we stand and we sing songs like, All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. I wonder how many times do we ever take a moment to reflect on the words Sometimes I think that when we stand and sing, you know, we're looking around to see who's here or looking around to see who's not here. And we get so preoccupied with different stuff. You're thinking about lunch. You're thinking about everything else under the sun. But when we stand to sing, there's a reason why songs are included and are incorporated in our collective worship. The Bible teaches us that we need to sing praises unto the Lord. And so when we do stand and sing, I think it would be due diligence for us all as believers to maybe reminisce during the week of some of these songs that we sing and think about the doctrine that it contains and the praise to God. Again, songs like Power in the Blood, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, At the Cross, Blessed Assurance, songs like When We All Get to Heaven. When you think about some of those songs that some of you in here grew up with and you have sang all your life and we sing these incredible songs about heaven, I love to sing about heaven. It excites me, it thrills me, it blesses me. Songs like How Beautiful Heaven Must Be. Songs like Heavenly Sunlight. You remember that old song? We don't sing that very much often anymore these days, but that's an incredible song. Songs like Heaven came down and glory filled my... How many of you remember that song? Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. I mean, I love preaching. I love teaching about heaven. I want to know all I can about it. And by the way, we have just started a Wednesday night series on the mighty book of Revelation. In our small group Bible study on Wednesday nights, we're going verse by verse. It's an expository preaching element on the book of Revelation. I would encourage you to come because in this particular study, you're going to learn so much about heaven that things properly or perhaps I have not even brought out in my annual Bible prophecy series that I've been preaching for the last 20 some years. But I love to do that. I'm interested in knowing what heaven is going to be like because there's a lot on the other side of Jordan waiting for me. 
I'm sure that some of you in here today have loved ones who have already made the crossing. And here's the neat thing about that. There's a lot on the other side waiting for you as well. I want you to think about that. I mean, my heart often thinks about it. My loved ones I have over there. I've got a lot of friends over there. I think about all eternity in its splendor and what that eternity in heaven is going to be like. I mean, think about it. To be somewhere forever. Everywhere we go in this earth has a beginning and has an ending. But when we cross the bounds of life and death, when we cross the great divide, we will be in eternity, no return. We will be in the presence of Jesus. Can somebody say amen? I want you to think about that. But in my recent thoughts about heaven, and as we are now in the early beginning stages of preparing for the celebration of our Lord's resurrection, and all of my thoughts about heaven, I wasn't really thinking about the beautiful pearly gates that the word teaches about, the jasper walls, the streets of gold. Even though I just now, Brother Danny and myself, we just went to the grave of my father who had passed just a little over a year ago. We've got, I wasn't thinking in the preparation of this sermon entirely upon my loved ones who are there, my friends who are there, the streets of gold, the gates of pearl, the walls of jasper. And all that God has made and prepared for us in heaven. And by the way, heaven is a real place. Heaven is just as real as the place where you're sitting right now. But I was reminded about the only man-made thing that will be there. I want you to think with this message today. Because the only thing in heaven, the only thing, the only man-made thing that's there... It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not the staff of Moses. It's not the Ark of the Covenant. But I believe that the only man-made thing that will be in heaven will be the scars in the hands and in the feet of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever thought about it like that? One of the things that we all like to do when we visit places that we've never, ever been before is that we're prone to have a desire to bring back some kind of souvenir that reminds us of a place or the places where we have been. One of those places that has been so fond in my life, and I've taken many of you with me to the Holy Land. We just got back from a 10-day trip. And I have been many times, and there's probably not a whole lot of places that I have not been but probably one of the most fondest memories that I have leading a group in the Holy Land was the day that I actually got to go to the top of Mount Calvary. Whenever we sing the song, I've been to Calvary, I can assure you I've been there and I've been on top of it. And getting up there, really when it was still dark, the sun was just about coming up, if you cannot picture this in your mind, those of you that have been there, you know very well what I'm talking about. But right at the foot of Calvary, Golgotha, the word calls it the place of the skull, there is a lapidated bus station, usually occupied primarily by Muslims. And then at the top of Calvary, the Muslims have desecrated it with 
Muslim graves. So when you think about Calvary, your, your minds are not able to comprehend this if you've not seen it with your physical eyes. I assure you there are no longer three crosses at the top of the place of the skull. In fact, there's only one scrawny little tree left to be seen. It's in the midst of a lot of Muslim gravestones. But I remember the day that I had the opportunity with two other people to actually climb to the top of Mount Calvary to spend some time in prayer. And one of the greatest thrills of my life in the way of souvenirs was to reach down in the, in the soil, the dirt at the top of Calvary, and I gathered four or five, maybe a half a dozen rocks, put them in my pocket, and we really had to take our life in our own hands, getting down before the sun was fully exposed. And I will never, ever forget going to that place and bringing back those particular items, souvenirs, Maybe you've been to a place that's very fond to you and you can remember, maybe it was an experience in your childhood. Maybe it's a trip that you've just returned from and you've brought back some type of souvenir that reminded you of the place where you were. When Jesus visited this earth, he took with him back to heaven some eternal souvenirs. It wasn't trinkets, some kind of earthly knickknacks. He didn't take a handful of straw from Bethlehem's manger. He didn't take a bunch of seashells from the Sea of Galilee. It was not something that would be lost or deteriorate in time. What Jesus took back to heaven with him, it was something that this world gave him in which he used to redeem the world from its sin. I'm talking about everlasting scars. So please don't underestimate or misunderstand this, that these scars in the hands of Jesus, listen carefully, they're going to be an everlasting, they're going to be an eternal reminder for those who are there now, and for those who are going to go in death or the rapture, those scars in the hands of Jesus will be an everlasting, eternal reminder of what Jesus has done for every single one of us on the cross of Calvary. I want you to hold your place here because we're coming back, but I want you to look at an Old Testament text in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse number six. And this is a great Pro prophetic scripture, but I want you to look at it carefully with me. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 6, the word says, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Or in other words, it was my brethren, my chosen people, who really gave me these scars. The prophet Zechariah here in this text, he is describing the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I've taught you so well. And I pray that you've retained it. 
And you could teach a Sunday school lesson on it yourself. There's a big difference between the rapture and the revelation. The rapture is the next prophetic event on God's calendar. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. And when the rapture takes place, when the trump of God shall sound according to the word of God, Paul said that the dead in Christ will rise first and then we, those of us who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with the dead as they are raised from their grave and the word says that we will be all changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye and we will meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. Seven years will go by after the rapture where we will be with the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ for three and a half years and then the second half, the second three and a half years, totaling seven, we will be at what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. But while we are enjoying these two wonderful events with the Lord Jesus, this world is going through a seven-year tribulation period. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus then descends from heaven with the host of heaven. That is called the revelation. And when he comes back in the revelation, when he returns, he is going to return to the Mount of Olives. And so it is in this reference that the prophet Zechariah is speaking. The prophet says that people, when Jesus returns in the revelation, they're going to stare at him with great mystery. They will examine him from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And as they are staring at Jesus, the question will be coming to him according to the prophet, what are those wounds? How did you get the scars in your hands? How did you get these scars in your feet? Where did they come from? Then Jesus will say, I got these scars when I was in the house of my friends. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 6, John the Revelator, he is writing and he says this, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and the, of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. We're going to be talking about this very specifically. I will break this verse down in the correct context as we study the mighty book of Revelation. Now, it was the nail-scarred hands on Jesus that John was talking about. Way back in the early 20s, some of you may remember what I'm talking about. But there was a great song leader in an old-time revival. I, I, wish, I wish I could show you this morning one of my, my old-time treasures. In fact, I don't, where's Brother Steve? Brother Steve, my office is unlocked. I'd like for you to go in my office, walk straight towards my desk, take a right turn by my gray filing cabinet and there's a big laminated poster there between the filing cabinet and the wall. I'd like for you to get that for me. I want you to see this. It'll blow your mind. Because probably I mentioned to you one of the greatest souvenirs I have in my life is the stones that I got from the top of Mount Calvary. But probably the second most treasured item that I have in my possession. Where's Beverly? It's something that you gave me many years ago. It was so precious and priceless to me that I had it laminated and it's something that I have cherished ever since the day that you put it in my hands. 
But back in the day, I'm talking about in the 20s and actually before the 20s, there were great revivals that would sweep over America. By the way, our forefathers came to this country seeking faith, freedom, and uh, religious liberty. Now, this is something you might be amazed in because back in the day of old-time revivals, I'm talking about old-time revivals, this is an actual, this is not a copy, this is not a reprint, but this is a copy. And on the date of this paper here is April the 4th, 1915. This is an advertisement that people took out in the local newspaper. How many of you have ever heard of Billy Sunday, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, greatest evangelist that ever lived? And in the local newspaper when they were having revival, this is how the country was back in 1915. They put out a huge, this is real now, this is authentic, and uh, advertising that Billy Sunday was coming to town to preach. And uh, this is what, this is what uh, he had printed. I'm not going to take the time to read it all of, for all of you today. But on the back side of the paper, this is what they printed. I'm talking about years ago when, when revival was sweeping the nation and people were religious to the point where it wasn't just a show up on Sunday morning or an Easter thing. I'm talking about when people lived the stuff. And also in this paper, they printed soul-steering appeals that have brought sinners to repentance. I'm talking about they published this in the newspaper. And in this particular revival crusade, they printed the song that was featured. It was Billy Sunday's favorite hymn, Brighten the Corner Where You Are. In this particular newspaper clipping, he preaches things like this, how to make success of a Christian life. He talks about religious hypocrites. He talked about how to pray. He talked about how to be involved in personal church work, how to succeed in life. But I'm telling you this, this is where the nation was back in 1915. I don't know how you came across this. But, and I can't take time to listen to you this morning, but <laughs> she took a breath. <laughs> I can't go that route today, but I will tell you, this is awesome. This is what I'm talking about when revival was sweeping the land, when people would come out by the groves and they asked Billy Sunday, they said, what do you feel is the secret to your evangelistic campaigns? Billy Sunday would pack out auditoriums. He would pack out tent meetings and so forth. But uh, on this particular question, on this particular night, he was preaching on a huge canvas floor. It was really elevated where people way in the back could hear him and see him. And they asked Billy Sunday, what is the secret to the success of your meetings? And this is what he said to the man asking the question. He said, come. The man had got there early. Nobody was there yet. Billy Sunday was walking over the place. He said, I want to show you what, what I believe is success. He walked up into the canvas to where he was preaching. And almost behind the pulpit, there was like a trap door behind him. Billy Sunday lifted up that trap door, and there were a 100 people on their knees praying for old-time revival.
Billy Sunday said, that is part of the reason. You can't get people to come out to a Wednesday night Bible study today. But back in the day, that's where they were. That was where their heart was. That's where their love was. B.B. McKinney, back in times like these, he was leading the invitation when the evangelist asked the question. The evangelist said, is there anyone here that would like to put their hand in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus? B.B. McKinney, who wrote a lot of the songs that we sing in yesteryears, he took that phrase in his mind and he just wouldn't let it go. And he went home and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the song, Put Your Hand in the Nail-Scarred Hands of Jesus. This morning, very quickly, I want to share with you three things that I see in the Gospel of John when I read about the nail-scarred hands of the cross. First of all, I see that beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus suffered on the cross. Sometimes I think there's a tendency to forget about that. A lot of us wear a chain with a cross around our neck and probably we never give thought to the suffering and the pain that went behind that. Suffering and pain, by the way, is something that we all have experienced to some degree in many areas of our life. Nobody thrills and loathes in pain. Sometimes our pain is so overwhelming that we don't have the ability to express it. Especially like when we see a loved one whose body is riddled with pain and we wonder why. God, why do you allow this to go on and on and on? I'm talking about when we see a child suffer. Maybe we fall on our knees and we say, oh God in heaven, would you intervene? Would you move on this heart? Would you move in this life? Oh God, do something about this. And then sometimes we don't instantly see God moving or God has another plan that we have not adjusted to his will yet. And sometimes we see the pain linger and we do not see God's immediate intervention and we begin to question him. God, what's the problem? I'm talking about a little child. Lord, aren't you sensitive to that? Maybe we begin to wonder, Lord, do you really care? Like the Bible says that you do. Or the devil makes you doubt. Maybe we wonder, does he really have the power, the old time power of the word? Does God still have that same old kind power today? How many times have we ever asked ourselves, God, why do you allow people to suffer? But we have to be reminded of something. And I want you to get this truth today that God himself suffered. Don't forget this truth. I mean, when they drove the nails into the hands of Jesus, they were driving those nails into the very heart of God. Jesus was not the only one suffering. God himself was suffering as well. In fact, there's a passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 63, verse number nine, and all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bared them and carried them all the days of old. So the word says that when God's people suffered and when they were afflicted, that God himself suffered. In fact, I want you to see this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse number 20. The prophet said, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore, now look at this. We're talking about God's suffering. Therefore, 
God, my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. So the Bible is saying here in this text that God suffered himself in the very pit of his stomach. All of us know what it's like when bad things happen in our life. Something scares the living daylights out of us or something makes us scared or we wished we hadn't said this, we wish we hadn't done that and it comes back to us. And all of a sudden our stomach begins to flip-flop. It creates that woozy kind of feeling, that sick feeling. I'm talking about maybe some of us in here tonight or today, maybe you have experienced a, a place, a moment, a time in your life when you've got that frantic phone call in the middle of the night. It woke you up out of a dead sleep at two o'clock in the morning. Maybe somebody in here has had the unpleasantries of having a sheriff knock on your door at three o'clock in the morning. Some of you have maybe experienced when a child has not come home at their curfew time. Some of you, this morning, you might have experienced that, that sick feeling, that time when your stomach just turned flip-flops, when your doctor calls and says, I need to urgently see you in my office as soon as possible. I mean, we all know what the hurt in the middle of our stomach feels like. All of us have experienced that. We know how fast our heart beats. We know that sick feeling all over. We begin to break out in a sweat over something or someone else. That's exactly what Jeremiah is describing that happened to God. I mean, when something terrible was happening to the children of God, Jeremiah said concerning God, my bowels are troubled for him. Now, you may have never thought about this, but God knows what it's like not to feel good. God knows what it's like to experience pain. God knows what it's like to suffer. And an interesting thing about our pain is this. There's not one person in this building today or watching by internet that can truthfully say that you chose your pain. Pain comes in a variety of ways but none of us, none of us woke up this morning with an agenda to inflict pain on our life and misery for the day. Now, if that's you, then something's wrong with you. None of us really wake up praying, God, afflict me today with boils. Let me sit in the ashes like Job and scrape the scabs off of my body. There's nobody in their right mind that would do that. None of us seek it. We don't choose it. And in many cases, for the moment, when those kind of things come our way, there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. But I want you to think about this just for a few moments today. When Jesus suffered on the cross... When he allowed those Roman soldiers to drive the nails in his hands and drive the nails in his feet, he chose to do that. He allowed them to do that. He was obedient to the death of the cross. Now, listen, because God is omnipotent, God could have done a variety of things. God could have said, you know what? Yeah, that was my plan. He was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. But you know what? I cannot take this anymore. 
The things that they're doing to my only begotten son, I cannot bear it. I'm not going to do it. God could have because he's God. He's omnipotent. He could have shut that thing down immediately, but he knew that there was no other way for human redemption than for Jesus to shed his royal crimson blood. That means that Jesus would have to suffer. He would have had to die. God allowed himself to suffer because of the very person he is. Now think about this just for a moment. God, and I, I don't know how many of us ever dwell on this, but God is a father. There's no possible way that you can be a father or mother without suffering on behalf of your children. All of us who are mothers or fathers, we have at some point in our life have suffered on behalf of our children. If there's anybody here today that says, well, not me. Well, you hang on. Your day's coming. I don't care if you raised them in a monastery. Your day is coming. Can you imagine that when we sin as children of the heavenly father, that God suffers with that sick, stomach-turning feeling in his bosom, somebody may say, well, preacher, I don't believe that God or Jesus can suffer because of the things we do. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly, now this is because of the things that Saul of Tarsus was doing. Suddenly, there shone round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. Now listen, Saul was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. He was hauling men and women back to synagogues for trials. He was feeding them barbarically to wild, savage, starving beasts. And Jesus now is asking him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing these things to me? Saul was persecuting the church, but Jesus said, Saul, the things that you're doing, you're making me suffer, you're hurting me. Why are you causing me the pain? And so the nail-scarred hands of Jesus should remind us that he suffered for us, really in words that we have no ability to set forth before you. Secondly, the second thing about these nail-scarred hands is not only does it tell us that he suffered, but because he suffered, listen carefully, I assure you the Savior cares. He cares when we suffer. He knows when we suffer. He understands and he knows what we go through. One of my favorite old-time songs of the faith is, Does Jesus Care? When my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. We need to know this today, that when we hurt, he hurts. 
In Hebrews 4.15, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. We have to keep in mind that when Jesus came to this world, he came in a human body. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about this. When a child is born, it is the beginning of a brand new personality. A personality that's never walked on this earth because each of us are different, beautifully, wonderfully made. A personality that has never previously existed on this planet. But when Jesus came into this world, it was not the beginning of a brand new personality because he was God in the flesh. And because he was in a human body, he knows exactly how we feel when we hurt and we suffer. He knows what it's like to limp. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows what it's like to be exhausted. He knows what it's like to suffer. So listen carefully. The souvenirs that he took back to heaven ought to constantly remind us that he has been here and done that. He was so much God, yet he was man. God knows exactly the pain of hardships. God knows exactly the pain that sin takes on our body. He knows what makes us cry. He knows the things that rips our heart out. But again, the question is this. So why does God permit it? Why does he allow it? The real answer to that question goes all the way back to Genesis. Look at this quickly with me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. Because this is after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin and God came to the garden and he said these words, Genesis 3, 14 and 19, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shall thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said this, notice, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I have commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So if you ever wonder why does God allow people to suffer, it's not because he's cruel. It's because he's holy. Everything changed when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And here's a great spiritual truth. You see, if God did not bring a consequence to sin, then Adam and Eve would never have known the difference between right and wrong. If God did not do that. Now, we don't ever think about it this way. But we need to thank God for our pain. You say, well, preacher, that's a hard thing to do. I know what the word says and everything give thanks. Yes, we do need to thank God for our pain because listen to this. Pain is a gift from God to let us know that something is wrong. It's like when we grieve the Holy Spirit by neglectful or sinful things in our lives. If we are really, truly a child of God, 
when we quench the Holy Spirit, he instantly brings a sharp conviction to us. And listen, that conviction or pain, it ought to warn us when we're children of God, it ought to slow us down. It ought to back us up. It ought to make us rethink something. And I want you to think about, I mean, pain and suffering, God can use to correct us. It's like this. If you put your hand on a hot stove, the message travels from your hand to your brain and your brain says, hey, don't do that again. Isn't that what we get out of that? Some of the reasons God allows pain in this world is because sometimes he's in the process of correcting us. He's in the process of teaching us. And pain will never be removed from us until the sin of this world has been finally dealt with. Let me ask you a question. Is sin still sin? Well, that seems to be a no-brainer. We're in church. This is Sunday. This is the Lord's Day. But again, think through this. Is sin still sin? This past week, I heard the president, Joe Biden, say this. I heard him say this. Now, he was speaking in direct reference to abominations. And he said, we no longer, I'm not verbatim, we no longer need to feel certain ways about certain things because if certain people feel these certain ways about certain things, we ought to just let them do it. And hey, okay. But let me ask you this. Have we got to the place in humanity where we no longer sin? Have we got to the place in humanity where sin is no longer sin? Because I tell you this, if there is no more sin on this earth, then we no longer need a savior. But as long as sin is sin, and as long as sin separates us from God, and as long as sin is rampant, I'm telling you this, we will always need a Savior. That's enough on him today. Those nail-scarred hands of Jesus constantly reminds us that something was wrong and that God had to deal with it. He suffered. He suffered willingly. He knows how we feel. He knows what we've gone through. He knows the troubles. Lastly, our musicians come forward quickly. The third thing that I see, the last thing in the outline today, is the scars teach us that because of those scars, God has conquered hell, death, and the grave. When Jesus came out of the grave, listen, he was not still bleeding. He was healed from those wounds. Isaiah said he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we're healed. Thank God there is victory in those nail-scarred hands. Those nail-scarred hands constantly remind us that Jesus paid it all. He paid our sin debt in full. Nothing else is owed. Now let me share something with you very important in closing as a Christian. And if you plan to follow Jesus, you need to buckle up and accept the fact that you too 
We're going to have to do some suffering. I as well, we're going to have to do some suffering. I've said this a thousand times. Jesus never said, hey, take up your picnic basket and follow me. What did he say? He said, pick up your cross, take up your cross and follow me. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be it made conformable unto his death. I'm telling you that when we get saved, God does not give us a pair of angel wings and a halo. You might be going through something terrible today. Your body may be riddled with physical pain. You may have a loved one that's suffering or somebody that's going through an unexpressible time of heartache. But I'll tell you this. In fact, your spirit may be overwhelmed. But if you close your eyes, if you are a child of God, no matter what you're going through, if you close your eyes and try to imagine Jesus on his throne and see him in his beauty and see him glorified, see him high and lifted up, try to imagine his red ruby eyes looking into your hand and saying, hey, these scars are for you. Hallelujah. If you're not sure that you're saved, I encourage you like B.B. McKinney to put your hand in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. And if you're out of fellowship with him, sing the words to the old song, out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come to thee. Let me encourage you to reach out to those nail-scarred hands. They are eternal reminders just how much Jesus loves us. The songwriter said, I shall know him. I shall know him. And redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him. By the prince of the nails in his hands. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.